there are certainly easier ways to make a living. There are certainly occupations for which one does not go into an average of a quarter million dollars of debt. And yet, I think this sense of calling, this sense of duty, of wanting to help other people, particularly when they are most vulnerable, is something that many, if not most of us, still feel very deeply. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Gritty Nurse Podcast. Hi, my name is Amy, and I am the co-host and co-founder of the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. On our podcast, we shy away from nothing, discussing hot topics in healthcare, such as mental health, social justice, health equity, women's rights, and women's health, and nursing as a profession. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And today I'm in conversation with physician, author, Dr. Suzanne Coven. Suzanne received her BA in English literature. Yep, we say it like that, literature, from Yale University. She received her MD and her internal medicine training from Johns Hopkins. She additionally holds a master's in fine arts in nonfiction from the Bennington Writing Seminars. She has worked at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School for over 30 years. Dr. Coven co-directs the Media and Medicine Certificate course at HMS and speaks to a wide variety of audiences. She speaks on literature, medicine, and the role of women in medicine. We speak today about her 2021 essay collection, which is entitled Letter to a Young Female Physician. Suzanne first came across my radar thanks to social media and thanks to Dr. Emily Silverman, who she herself hosts a podcast entitled The Nocturnists. When we get to the conversation, Suzanne is responding to one of my thoughts about the overall theme of the book. When you have spoken about your book and the essays you've written, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you've described them a bit as writing about the extra layer of being a woman. Yeah, that I didn't plan it that way, um, but I seem to to keep coming back to that theme. Uh, despite the title of the book, uh, which was the title of, of an essay I originally wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine, I did not really see this uh, initially as a book about women in medicine. Uh, And yet, um, you know, as I wrote essay after essay, revisiting um, uh, episodes uh, as distant in time as memories of my childhood, uh, you know, growing up in a neighborhood where all the men were doctors and all the women were housewives, uh, to being uh, on the verge of retirement, the theme of being a woman in medicine kept coming back. And that has reverberated in the aftermath of the publication of the book, where uh, despite the fact that many people who read the book who are not in medicine and are not women uh, tell me that they relate to it in many ways, most of the mail I get is from women in medicine. And I've learned a lot uh, from them about the current status of women in medicine that I didn't know when I wrote the book. That's been a great pleasure of publication. Correct me if I'm wrong, and that is that 
what you're writing is not at all historical. It actually completely resonates with the present experience. Yes, that has been uh, absolutely uh, a surprise. Uh, and uh, as I've often thought, it's delightful for me as a writer, but appalling for me as a woman in medicine that um, uh, young women in medicine now, medical students, residents, don't consider uh, my stories uh, of what was going on back in the 80s uh, remote or archaic or historic or okay boomerish. Um, you know, I tell some of these stories uh, to groups of residents and they say, yeah, it hasn't changed. And in fact, amazingly, alarmingly, um, Given the increase in, uh, in numbers of women in medicine now, more than half of, of uh, physicians under 35 are women, uh, more than half of medical students are women. Uh, women constitute the overwhelming majority in certain uh, subspecialty training programs such as OBGYN and pediatrics. Um, very little has changed in terms of sexism, gender inequity uh, in medicine. Listeners, in healthcare and not in healthcare are just surprised. That can't be. How could that be? And yet, you know, you're here to say this, I'm here to say this, but it's not just hearsay. It's not just case reports of our own experience. It's actually in the literature. It's in the data. Yeah, it is in the data. I mean, a gender pay gap is a gender pay gap. It's it's measurable. Um, uh, reports of harassment are, are measurable. Um data about who gets promoted, who gets published, uh, who's the chief of the department, who's the dean. Uh, these aren't uh, anecdotal. Uh, so, so uh, yes, people are surprised. And in fact, what's been interesting to me, and in, in a funny kind of way, even moving to me, is that when I talk about this at hospitals around the country, Sometimes the reaction I get, particularly from men, uh, is, oh, but it's not like that here. And I think, you know, um, mostly doctors are pretty good people. Mostly hospitals are, you know, pretty nice places. Um, uh, and nobody wants to think, uh, particularly in, in academic settings that consider themselves bastions of uh, progressive thinking, that these things happen uh, in our own backyard, but they do. Yeah. In reading the collection of essays, your book, uh, I was able to glean, pull out a few themes. I'll say three, and then let's do a little bit of a deep dive. Boundaries, Aging and old age and shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're all intertwined, aren't they? So I would say boundaries is, is something that has fascinated me from earliest childhood. The idea that school was different than home. The idea that, you know, my father went to his medical office wearing one outfit and changed into a different outfit when he came home, um, that adults were different than kids, 
that kids in my neighborhood were different than kids in a different neighborhood at school. Um, these, these are things that always fascinated me. And I, I think what fascinated me was a, a tremendous curiosity about uh, what was being kept secret from me. Uh, so I loved play dates. I loved going to other people's houses and, you know, snooping in the refrigerators and seeing the ways in which their families were different than my family as reflected by, you know, what brand of, of, uh, you know, chocolate syrup they used and so forth. And I had all sorts of elaborate theories about what this meant. So boundaries always interested me. Uh, and, um, and, and, of course, in, you know, the practice of medicine for me, I think really has been about understanding appropriate boundaries, um, understanding the value, the therapeutic value of playing the edge of a boundary. I talk in the book about the number of times that I, as a primary care physician, am asked for advice that isn't really medical. Should I have another child? Should I send my kid to private school? If I don't visit my mother in the nursing home every week, uh, should I feel guilty about that? I mean, these are not medical questions. And yet, um, when engaged in the context of a clinician-patient relationship, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think they're, they're very uh, rich and, and potent sort of entries into um, a therapeutic interaction. If I can, I'm going to have you hold one sec before we move on because I want to do um, this theme of boundaries uh, is intriguing to me because you speak about this in your essays, the boundary of wearing a white coat versus no longer needing the white coat, the boundary of giving out your personal mobile phone number versus not a hug. And there's a great essay, you and I have discussed this by Jay Baruch about hug or ug. Um, because um, there is this sense of touch, not touch. Again, where, where, where is the boundary? And what struck me in your essays, or perhaps as you moved along in your career, age and stage-wise, those boundaries seemed less black-white, less uh-huh. firm, and more mobile. Yeah. So I think that had to do with growing confidence, and in a couple of ways. The first way was that Early in my career, I thought, particularly as a young woman, in order to be taken seriously, I had to be very starchy. Uh, I had to wear a white coat. Uh, I I blanched when a patient called me by my first name or asked me about my family. Uh, I thought, well, maybe that's sexist. Um, But of course, it wasn't. Um, uh, It was just sort of wanting a particular closeness. And as the years went by, I felt more and more comfortable with that closeness as long as it was serving the patient. And there were moments, particularly when I began my writing career, when I would have a writer as a patient and I would really want to chat them up about this whole writing thing. You know, this is somebody who was a professional writer and I was you know, asking all sorts of questions. And this person had had come in in some distress about a medical issue. uh, And 
they called me out on it. They said, you know, we're not here to talk about your writing. Uh, and uh, I was absolutely mortified. But as the years went by, uh, I think I, I, um, I gained the confidence to be more myself. And the second part of that is I gained the confidence to realize that bringing myself to the interaction was very valuable. You know, one of my uh, older uh, colleagues, I call him Marty in the book, um, when I first went into practice, he's 25 years older than I am. He's, he's still one of my best friends. Uh, when I first went into practice, and he was in his 50s, uh, uh, he had been in practice for quite a while, and he said, never forget that uh, you are the most powerful therapeutic tool you have. Your personality, your humor, your body language, everything about you. And I, I didn't really believe it when I was young. I thought, well, yeah, but what about this thing that I don't know? And what about this thing that I don't remember? And what if I miss this or that? And as the years went by, um, I, I realized uh, that he was right. It is possible to be successful being yourself. And you said this in one of your interviews recently. Yes, I think that um, what I wrote about in that initial essay letter to a young female physician was a realization that uh, I had, I think, really rather late in my career, which is that the things about ourselves that we sort of take for granted, that we think, oh, yeah, anybody can do that. Everybody knows how to do that. Um, these, in fact, may be the best of what we have to offer. And I see this again and again, you know, uh, one of the uh great pleasures, as I mentioned, of having written a book like this is I get a lot of mail, uh, particularly from young women, and they tell me about um, struggling with imposter syndrome and uh, struggling with, um, with, with self-doubt and, and so forth. Um, and it's so clear to me uh, from many of these messages, which are, you know, open and vulnerable and heartfelt and sometimes incredibly well-written, that these are uh, women who have um, everything to give. Uh, and I just hope that my book and um, the messages that I, I reply with help them see that even a little bit. You brought up Marty, and Marty can lead us right into Aging and Old Age. And in your essay, you say something that I think is Brill, short for brilliant, and that yeah. sort of you define... I watch a lot of British TV shows, so I know. <laughs> you um, sort of define, or your characters define what aging is, and it's sort of when you're no longer aspirational. Yeah, he said that to me once when he was in his 80s. Uh, he said, this is what aging is. He said, I am no longer aspirational. And this is someone who is still uh, very uh, active, very uh, intellectually engaged, uh, very politically uh, aware and interested. And yet he's not grabbing brass rings anymore. And uh, I'm not there yet. Um, 
you know, I think it's, it's hard to keep writing books if you're not aspirational. There's a lot of deferred gratification involved, uh, in, in writing a book to say the least. Um, but you know, uh, as with, um, uh, boundaries, uh, age is something that also interested me from a very, um, you know, early time in my life. Uh, I spent a lot of time with grandparents, particularly my grandmothers, uh, when I was growing up. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about the difference between being my grandparents' age and my parents' age and my older brothers and me and what did that age difference mean. And, uh, you know, I was, I was a kid who was preoccupied with such things. Uh, aging as a primary care doctor is a really interesting phenomenon because you start out feeling pretty invulnerable to your patient's diseases. You know, you're 30, 35 years old, you're probably not going to get a heart attack. You're probably not going to get colon cancer, though, of course, we know some people do. Um, and then um, I just I just uh, wrote a piece about this uh, a couple of weeks ago in the New England Journal uh, of Medicine uh, that was not in the book uh, about how um, just recently I deigned to sign in to the patient portal uh, to communicate with my doctor, just like any old patient. And I asked myself, why, after resisting this for so long, uh, did I start doing this? And uh, spoiler alert, I concluded that it's because age uh, has, even though I'm still practicing, age has taken me closer to being a patient than being a physician. There's a wonderful line in Mohsen Ahmed's uh, novel, Exit West, where he says, we are all migrants through time that whether we uh, travel or not, we're traveling in time. And it is kind of amazing that one day you sort of look up and you realize the distance you've traveled in years and that, you know, clinical retirement, which was inconceivable to me until maybe a year ago, suddenly becomes entirely obvious uh, and, um, and other things like that. So how did your relationship to shame change from the beginning of your career or maybe start in childhood until now? Well, as a child, I was very easily embarrassed. Uh, I, everything embarrassed me. Uh, and um, even though I was a pretty confident kid, I was very easily embarrassed. Um, you know, if I wore the wrong thing to school, if I got a, you know, a bad score on a spelling test, it was all, you know, if my mother or my father said something in front of my friends, God forbid, um, it was all very embarrassing. Uh, and then I think the, I think embarrassment morphed into shame in, you know, through my medical training in the early years of my career, shame about, um, you know, trying to combine uh, parenthood with medicine and feeling that I was doing both badly. Um, then later on, as my parents uh, reached the ends of their lives, shame about not being a good enough daughter, uh, shame about not knowing enough, 
um, not having a clean enough house, not etc. Um, and I think uh, a great gift that practicing medicine has given me is a window into the fact that everybody lives in a state of shame, that this is part of the human condition, that the fanciest people, the people with the fanciest clothes and titles and the money and the perfect everything are people who feel deep shame because this is part of the human condition. And and so I think after practicing uh, many years, I finally believed that... Um, that shame was normal. Uh, I say in the book that shame always insists on its own uniqueness. That I think part of shame is is a, a, a deep, fixed, and false belief that we are the only ones who whatever. Um, well, the more people you meet, you know, who whatever... <laughs> Uh, the more you become convinced that you're actually not all that unique in your shame. And that is uh, a tremendous uh, balm for shame, or or certainly has been um, for me. And I think also, it's made me, uh, this exposure to other people's shame uh, has made me less judgmental. Uh, both of other people and of myself, and uh, uh, just to sort of jump from medicine to writing, you know, a gift of doing the kind of personal writing that I've done uh, is is realizing that if you write uh, honestly um, and from the heart about things that are shameful or embarrassing, you know the the letters and messages you will get will not be people saying, "Oh, you know, you're horrible, how awful." Um, the letters and messages you will get will be people saying, "Thank you for saying that. I feel that way too," because, uh, as I often tell my students, and I think particularly for physicians, this is very hard to believe. Uh, personal writing um, is a mirror. It's not a window. When I write about my imposter syndrome, my readers really don't care all that much about my imposter syndrome. They care about their imposter syndrome, which is as it should be, as I would want it to be. And speaking of vulnerability, writing authentically, and really putting yourself on the page, I was definitely struck by what you put in writing. Example, your relationship to weight and dieting. Well, you know, I, I, I guess um, I've had some practice uh, doing this. I've published a lot of personal essays. Um, I've never gotten feedback uh, that was uh, critical of me as a person for um you know, having the attributes or experiences that I've, I've written about. Um, again, also as a clinician and basically just as, uh, you know, a woman in, in uh, 
this country and this in this culture, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if I talk about the fact that I started dieting when I was 12 uh, and didn't stop until I was 60, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there may be a few people who would relate to this. And of course, and of course, um, there are, um, sadly. <laughs> yeah. When you and I first met and started speaking, I told you that your essays specifically about childhood and Brooklyn reminded me a lot of Philip Roth. Mm-hmm. And when readers pick up your book and read your pieces, who will they see? Uh, who will they feel in terms of authors that have influenced you? Hmm. Uh, well, first of all, um, thank you for that compliment. I adore Philip Roth. I know many people feel that uh, he does not write uh, female uh, characters very well. Um, I love his novels. I particularly love uh, his memoir about his father's final illness um, with brain cancer uh, called Patrimony. I think that's just an absolutely beautiful book. Um, you know, I uh, I think that um, there is a certain New York Jewish mid-century um, sensibility uh, that may remind people, you know, a, a teeny bit of Roth. It feels uh, pretentious uh, of me to even say that and presumptuous. Um, I, um, I hope that, um, my writing has warmth and humor. One thing I think I told you, uh, when we first spoke, which is, uh, I think, uh, would not be a very popular, uh, thing for a uh, female essayist to say is that I'm not a huge fan of Didion. Uh, I admire her. Um, uh, I understand her popularity, but, um, I, I don't find, um, her writing, uh, as warm or as, as infused with humor as I would like. Um, someone who, uh, I mean, of course we could mention a million people, but, uh, someone, uh, whose essays I like very much, uh, and have recently read are Ann Patchett's. Uh, I thought her essay collection, These Precious Days, uh, in which she she sort of spins and spins around a particular memory, a particular incident. And um, it's something that, as I, I tell my students, uh, you should write about what sticks in your craw. And it's clear that she's writing about what sticks in her craw and trying to figure out why it sticks in her craw and sort of following until she, you know, you can, you can sort of see the wheels turning until she finally says, Oh, that. And you also feel as, as I think you do with, with um, any, you know, really good essayist, you also feel a sense of, of surprise. You feel that, um, you know, as she's writing these essays, you could say the same of, of E.B. White um, or, you know, any number of, of wonderful essayists, 
that they start out not knowing how the essay will end. Uh, and that's what I advise, and that's uh, what I aspire to. Yeah. You make a distinction of being an essayist, not a short story writer. And I'm wondering if you can clarify that for the audience. Yeah, uh, I think there's often some confusion about that. So I don't write uh, fiction. Um, I don't write novels. Uh, never say never, but I don't write novels. I don't write, um, uh, I don't write short stories, um, that are made up characters and plots. Although there is a lot of invention and creativity and, um, sort of editing about what to include and what not to include that goes into, uh, an essay. Now, um, another distinction is between being an essayist and a memoirist. I think I'm more of an essayist uh, than a memoirist. As my husband once said to me, you're more a master of the three-minute song than of the opera. And I think he was, he was right about that. My sweet spot is 1,200 to 2,500 words. Um, and uh, it so happens in this book that I think the essays with with the great encouragement of my my editor uh the the essays kind of link up and in aggregate form um a memoir uh they do sort of um, chronologically follow my life from childhood to the present but um uh but i they can be read independently uh and there's an essayist essayistic voice uh, as we all know, the, the term essay, which was invented by Montaigne, comes from essayer, to try. So the suspense of an essay, what keeps us turning the page, uh, is a little bit what happens next. But it's mostly, you know, this person has gotten themselves into a logistical or um, emotional or psychological pickle. How are they going to get out of it? I loved this conversation. I love talking about books, and I love speaking with authors, and I love speaking with physician authors. Before I get to the Risa wrap-up, here's a word about the podcast, In the Right Direction. I'm Deb Elbaum, leadership and executive coach and host of the podcast, In the Right Direction. We explore strategies to help you think and communicate clearly and confidently so that you feel engaged and purposeful, both at work and in life. The Risa Wrap-Up. Well, first off, deep thank you and gratitude to Dr. Suzanne Coven. So I called, I curated these three themes, which I talk about in the podcast. Boundaries, aging, and shame. What amazed me was Suzanne's authenticity, her vulnerability, her willingness to kind of just say things and put it down on the page. You know, as physicians, there is a hazing process. There is a way that you are socialized, that you don't talk about things, things that make you human, things that make you a full individual, complicated, thoughtful, emotional, vulnerable human. That's it for this week, audience. Until next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>